In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we'll be talking about the development of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And we're also going to talk about looking at Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant and how these two ideas can really be uh, blended together for us to understand a little bit better exactly what the Church teaches about the Blessed Virgin. Please enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo. Um, today we are going to be um, diving into the dogma of the Immaculate Conception and also um, look at uh, this idea of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant or the new Ark of the Covenant. And what I want to try and show you is that there's a real close connection between Mary being immaculately conceived and we'll talk about what that means, uh, and then also this um, vision of Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. So uh, at the very beginning, um, I want to just make sure that we start with kind of clarifying what the term Immaculate Conception actually means, um, and looking at the actual proclamation of that uh, doctrine in uh, 1854 from Pius IX. So one of the real common misconceptions about the Immaculate Conception, you ask people, what's the Immaculate Conception? A lot of people kind of instinctively say that was Jesus being conceived in the womb. He was immaculately conceived. And of course, you know, Jesus was conceived without uh, any sin, but actually the Immaculate Conception is a doctrine that has to do with Mary um, and her conception. So this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 491. Through the centuries, the Church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. And this is a quotation from the encyclical Inefabulus Deus, uh, Inefabulis Deus, I think is the, how you say it, um, from 1854. The Most Blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Okay, so what, what this means is that there was never a moment in which Mary existed and was marked by sin. Okay, so everybody else <laughs> besides Mary and Jesus uh, is born in a state of original sin. You are conceived, and from the moment of your conception, like you receive original sin, and of course that original sin can be wiped out at baptism. That's the normal way in which people are um, removed from the state of original sin. So the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, um, by that dogma, the Church is saying that Mary never even for a moment experienced that state or that condition of being in 
sin, not even in original sin. And this is actually a really interesting, um, you know, example of the development of doctrine, uh, because there are reasons within the scriptures to presume um, that at least in in a uh, implicit way, it, it's discussing Mary to to be free of sin. Um, but there's also a widespread sort of liturgical basis for the doc for the dogma. So. The way that the Church deals with Revelation is that there are some things that are contained in this text of Scripture in a completely straightforward fashion that are dogmas and doctrines that we have to believe. For instance, Jesus rising from the dead, right? It's just right there in the Gospels. It doesn't take a whole lot of argumentation to show that this is at least something that the Church in memorial has proclaimed. And there are other things which are not plainly taught in the scriptures that might more firmly be taught in the tradition. So maybe in the writings of the councils or church fathers, saints, popes, that sort of thing. And the Immaculate Conception is one of those things that is more present in the tradition, although not entirely absent from scripture. Okay, so, and we'll we'll talk a lot about scripture, you know, during the course of this episode in this conversation. But outside of scripture, it was very much something that was taught by many of the church fathers, although not all of them. It was something that was even more present in the liturgy. So there were people dedicating feasts to the Immaculate Conception, celebrating, you know, building churches in honor of, of Mary the Immaculately Conceived, and that sort of thing. Um, but not everybody, you know, always taught this exact doctrine. So one famous example of this is St. Thomas Aquinas, um, and, you know, we're not going to spend 20 minutes talking about Aquinas, but Essentially, Aquinas believed that, of course, Mary was very important. She is the mother of God. She's a Theotokos, um, and she's a virgin, uh, and, you know, she was assumed into heaven. But he didn't have this notion of her being immaculately conceived. What he thought was that Mary existed for one moment, a singular moment, okay? However, you would quantify that, right? Just a moment, where she did experience original sin, and then immediately, so before she was even free of, you know, before she was even born, uh, but just still in the womb, had that sin wiped out, right? So Pope Pius IX's, you know, declaration that um, that she was preserved immune from all stain of original sin from the first moment of her conception— Aquinas is not quite there, but it's not as though Aquinas thought she was born and had to be baptized or she had sin until Jesus died or anything like that. He still was willing to grant in the womb Mary was free of all sin, uh, but only after this one moment of having sin, right? So it was just, he wasn't quite there. Um, I think sometimes people paint Aquinas as being, you know, like opposed to the idea. The issue for Aquinas was he he had a hard time trying to reconcile if Mary, in fact, never experienced even a moment of original sin, how could Christ have been said to die for all? And so it was for him, it was kind of a rational sort of theological problem. Like, if Christ didn't suffer for her, then um, be, because she never had original sin, Christ couldn't have suffered for her. And of course, what Aquinas wasn't realizing was, you know, God can time travel. <laughs> it is actually a very complicated thing, but for, for, for Christ's merits on the cross, which haven't happened yet, to have been pre-applied, basically, to Mary from the moment of her conception is, is sort of the way that the doctrine and the dogma works out. Now, beyond this, you know, just initial description of what does the Church say, how is it proclaimed, what's really interesting to me and what I want to share with you all today 
is how this developed and especially how Pius IX wound up arriving at the definition that he made. Okay, so he made the declaration in 1854 um, on December 8th, you know, 1854, which is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. He proclaimed this teaching about Mary being free from any and all sin from the moment of her conception because of the merits of Christ and his passion, right, which does involve sort of, you know, pre-applying those merits to her even before he's been born. Um, however, it's not as though in 1854, Pope Pius IX just got up one day and decided he was going to proclaim this doctrine. Actually, um, seven drafts of the encyclical were written, um, and in each of these drafts, there were different ways of explaining, different ways of theologically, you know, providing a rationale for how we can look at Mary as being immaculately conceived. Um, and during this time, he actually had a survey sent out to the world's bishops. And, and this was over a several-year period. It was actually 1848 when Pope Pius IX started working on this project of trying to make a movement to proclaiming the dogma infallibly about Mary's you know, uh, Immaculate Conception. So over the period of six years, bishops were submitting their, their answers to uh, his survey uh, about you know, what kind of liturgical devotion was there, what kind of theological um, beliefs were there uh, about uh, a justification for, you know, proclaiming Mary to be immaculately conceived. And 600 responses were collected, which I'm sure took a very long time, because this is, I mean, it's not just like snail mail. This is like putting a letter in a boat um, and having that boat have to go across the world. So it was a very long process of gathering data from the bishops of the world. And he finally, uh, in November of 1854, had a collection of 100 of, of the world's bishops to discuss the definition, which, which I read, the, the critical sentence, and then the encyclical that was going to accompany that. And what wound up happening is basically the, the bishops that were gathered agreed with the definition of Mary being immaculately conceived, uh, but they didn't agree with the way that he was presenting his argument. In other words... They weren't sure what was the best way to explain why we are teaching that Mary is immaculately conceived, um, and this delayed the release of the encyclical. So in the actual encyclical, uh, what you see happening is Pope Pius IX refers a lot of times to the Proto-Evangelium, which is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, or the first gospel. Um, and in three cases in the encyclical, in Fabulous Deus, in Fabulous Deus, um, Pope Pius IX refers to that passage, right? And this is this is the the uh, proclamation that the the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, and the way that that text is used, um, Pius IX reads this in a very Marian way. So basically, what he says is that it's Mary that would triumph utterly over the ancient serpent. So the first time that he refers to Genesis three fifteen, he says. Mary will triumph over the ancient serpent. The next time that he brings up the passage, um, he describes the enmity between Christ and the serpent, and, say, and he says that Mary, with Christ, crushed his head, the serpent's head, with her immaculate foot. So it's like Christ and Mary at the same time are stepping on the serpent's foot. Um, but he says, with her immaculate foot. 
The third time that he brings up Genesis 3.15, um, he identifies Mary as the one who is going to crush the serpent. And it's actually this choice that a lot of the bishops gathered for that uh, discussion in November of 1854 that they, they disagreed with. They thought, yes, Mary is immaculately conceived. This is not the best way to um, actually proclaim that. Um, so th- this is a kind of what I, what I actually want to talk about a little bit is what might be another way to justify that? Um, and, and it has to do with uh, this idea of Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, or the New Ark of the Covenant, or New Ark of the New Covenant, however you want to say it. Um, and of course, this, this relates to uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. So if you don't remember the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, you clearly need to watch Indiana Jones and see exactly, precisely how the Ark of the Covenant uh, was used in salvation history and in movie history. Um, but the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was very important for the Israelites, and it contained some very special items. had the Book of the Law, um, Aaron's staff, and some of the manna. Um, and it was, of course, a symbol of God's presence and actually you know, brought God's presence to the Israelites. Um, and, it, and it was you know, this sacred artifact for the Israelites. So that's the, the old, the original Ark of the Covenant. Um, Mary as the new Ark, what, was that? What, what would that mean? Well, one thing that I, I kind of need to add in here is that for the Israelites, you know, God's presence was not just this like ineffable thing that they could never see or never know when God was present or where he was. He was present in the tabernacle. He was, he was present in the temple. And of course, in the Holy of Holies, um, you know, that's where, that's where God's present presence was. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, was located. Um, now, what is going to, uh, to to happen is the Israelites begin to develop this this uh, practice of actually going to the temple to see the face of God. There's a really fascinating article by biblical scholar Gary Anderson. He's a professor at Notre Dame um, in Indiana, the University of Notre Dame, and uh, he he describes this right where the Israelites would go to the temple and priests would bring out pieces of furniture from the temple. And just hold them up and just, you know, to where people could see them. The crowds couldn't go all the way into the temple, so they're in the outer court. And they would just hold up different pieces, different furnishings from, from the holy place, from the temple, so that the people could see the face of God. And, they, and, and Anderson puts it very, very pointedly. He says, an Israelite in one of these ritual experiences could point to that piece of furniture and say, there's God. In the same kind of way that we as Christians could point to Jesus Christ himself or the Eucharist and say, there's God, right? A piece of furniture was was given that much sort of importance because it came from the temple where God's presence was. So it was like sort of an act of worshiping, and it's just, and it's again, it's just a piece of furniture, it's raw materials, raw matter, right? Now, the reason I bring that up is because one of the things that I, that I think is really interesting is Mary is the immaculately conceived it's a gift given to her because of the function that she's going to have. Namely, she's going to bear Christ within her womb, right? If she's going to actually bear the Son of God within her, doesn't it make sense to give her the privilege of not having the stain of original sin within her? And if a mere piece of furniture could be said to represent God here, look, there's God right there, and it's just inert matter, to, to give it that much of a, of a grace, 
couldn't God give Mary this grace of having been prevented from experiencing, even for a moment, um, original sin? So uh, now let's get back to the Ark of the Covenant thing specifically. Um, in Luke's gospel, uh, in the account of the Annunciation and the Visitation, what we actually see kind of going on a little bit beneath the surface is clearly a depiction of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. So what happens to Mary between the Annunciation, where the angel of the Lord appears to her, and the Visitation, where she goes to visit Elizabeth, very directly parallels some of the things that happen to and with the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, uh, going going to Jerusalem in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, and so there's, there's sort of a way to kind of work through this. And actually, we're going to share a link with you um, in, the, in the show notes. This really cool website that I've just recently found is called agapebiblestudy.com. Um, it's some, looks like some lay Catholics. And anyways, they have a chart that makes this like really visually easy to see. So I'm just going to kind of work through the chart so we can kind of see this parallel. And what I think is very, very clear is the evangelist, St. Luke, is trying on purpose to use his narrative to, to tell us what actually happened to Mary, but he's highlighting particular things that should make someone who knows the story of the Ark of the Covenant go, oh, wait a minute, this is just like what happens to the Ark in the Old Testament. So the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Exodus, God overshadows and then enters into and dwells in the Ark, and the Ark becomes the dwelling place of the presence of God. You see this in the book of Exodus chapter 40. In Luke's gospel, you see the Holy Spirit doing what? He overshadows Mary, and that Greek term in the New Testament is the same as the Greek term in the Septuagint, the, the, the verb for overshadow. And once Mary has been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then you know, is dwelling within her because Christ is present in her, right? So the ark is overshadowed, and then the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in the ark. Mary is overshadowed, and then the Son of God dwells within her, okay? The ark, as I said earlier, contains the book of the law, the Ten Commandments. Um, it contains a portion of the manna in the desert and Aaron's rod, um, three really important symbols for the Israelites. In the Blessed Mary, in the Blessed Virgin uh, Mary's womb, what do we find? Well, we find Christ there, right? And Christ actually, he is the Word made flesh. He's the law, right? Personified, right? When you see in the Sermon on the Mount, he proclaims the law. He doesn't need the tablets. So the tablets of the law are present. The one who gives us the new law is present in Mary's womb. In the ark, we have a pot of manna, right? Some, some pieces of manna from the, the, the journey in the desert. In Mary, we have Christ who gives us his flesh as the new manna. And of course, Aaron's rod, you know, a symbol of his authority. We have the, the, the authority of the Messiah himself residing in Mary's womb. Um, now, another part of the story is the Ark of the Covenant travels in the book of 2 Samuel with, with David to the hill country of Judah uh, to rest in, in, uh, in, in a, a town of Judah. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke recounts Mary traveling to the hill country of, Ju of Judah, right, the same place to go visit Elizabeth. And the, the ark remains in this town in Judah in, in 2 Samuel 6 for three months. 
Mary remains with her cousin Elizabeth in the visitation for three months. During the procession of the ark in 2 Samuel 6, um, David, the king, is dressed as a, as a priest wearing a linen ephod, and he leaps and dances with joy in front of the ark while it is in procession. In the Gospel of Luke, when we're at the visitation, we have someone leaping for joy in the presence of Mary, who is the new ark. That's John the Baptist leaping for joy in Elizabeth's womb. Okay, um, David also shouts for joy um, in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 15, while Elizabeth exclaims a loud cry of joy in the presence of God within Mary in Luke's Gospel, um, chapter 1, verse 42. Another really, really cool part, when the, the Ark of the Covenant is presented to David in 2 Samuel 6, he says, How is it that the Ark of the Lord comes to me? Where Elizabeth asks, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me, right? Very, very, very obvious parallel here where Luke is trying to trying to just almost beat us over the head with this metaphor that if you don't see this, Mary is the new ark. Just like David asked, how could the ark of the Lord come to me? Here's Elizabeth asking, how, how could this be granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Um, the, uh, the house of Obed-Edom, which is where the, the ark was for these three months, is said to be blessed in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. The word blessed is used many times uh, con concerning Mary visiting Elizabeth's house. And uh, these kind of give us just so some basic ideas here of the connections between the Ark of the Covenant um, in the Old Testament and then in Luke's Gospel. And there's there's even a, a couple of more things here. Um, one is in the book of Revelation. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. In chapter 11, verse 19, uh, St. John mentions a vision of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the last verse in chapter 11. So right at the end of the chapter, he says that he sees a vision of the Ark. Then, immediately, he begins to talk for the entire chapter 12 about Mary, right? And that seems a little bizarre to say, oh, whoa, the Ark of the Covenant. Haven't seen that in forever, right? It was lost, um, it's in a warehouse that the FBI has it. No, it's not lost, but I mean, it is lost, but it's not in a warehouse with the FBI, right? John should have been really excited about seeing the Ark of the Covenant, but he goes on to talk about Mary. And the reason is because, why is it? Because John sees Mary as the new Ark. So he can, in fact, see the Ark and then go on to talk about Mary, or he can be seeing Mary and be talking about her as the new Ark. So this is like sort of a couple of things to, to, to think about um, in terms of um, how we can see Mary kind of in a different way. And what, I, what I'm suggesting here is that if, and, you know, this is, I mean, about as highly speculative as our theology gets here on the, on the St. Philip Institute podcast, uh, if, you know, Pius IX had chosen, instead of going to the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and giving that this Marian read, this Marian interpretation about crushing the head of the serpent, um, maybe... You know, the bishops of the world might have might have agreed more if he'd taken this other path and talk about Mary as the Ark of the Covenant and the extreme privileges that she would have, and that's a, a good rationale or, or, or explanation for why um, we ought to see Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant, or I'm sorry, understand her as being immaculately conceived. Um, but beyond just this kind of like parallel here between 2 Samuel 6 and the Gospel of Luke, 
there's also, you know, quite a bit of evidence um, for the, the, the patristics seeing Mary in this way. Um, so I'll, I'll read you here just a, a couple of quotations to kind of bear this out. Um, and, and actually, just as a, as a resource recommendation, um, these are from the Ancient Christian Commentary on Sacred Scripture, which uh, if you're looking for study Bibles of some sort, now they're, I mean, they're pretty expensive and it's, it's heavy duty. It's really, really awesome series where, and it's, it's actually produced by Protestants, interestingly enough. They collect quotations of the Church Fathers, commenting on all of the books of the, of the, of the Old and New Testament. Um, or maybe this is only on New Testament. Actually, I'm, I'm a little confused. It's an excellent series, though. Um, anyway, in this New Testament volume on the Gospel of Luke, um, I, I've gotten a couple of these quotations from there. So there's this, this church father named Theophanes, and um, on his canon of the Annunciation, right, writing on a Marian feast, he says he addresses Marian prayer as the spotless maiden, right, immaculately conceived, the spotless maiden, as an ark of gold, receive now the giver of the law, who through you has been pleased to deliver mankind. So notice what he does in this in this in this little you know supplication to, to Mary. He refers to her to the gold of the uh, the ark of gold of the Old Testament, and he talks about Mary as fulfilling that because she does not just bear within her the tablets of the law but the, the law herself, the Word made flesh. Not just the words of the law, but the Word made flesh. And in, in this one little supplication, he's bringing out this idea of the ark and talking about Mary's sinlessness, calling her the spotless maiden. St. Athanasius um, praised Mary's purity, and he also draws a comparison to the ark. He said, "'To whom among all creatures shall I compare you, O virgin? You are greater than them all.' O Ark of the New Covenant, check this out, clothed with purity instead of gold, right? So the Ark was, was, was uh, you know, full of gold, was, was, was wrapped in gold, or, 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 you know, gold was a constitutive element of the Ark uh, because of what it would contain. And, and St. Athanasius says, no, Ark of the New Covenant, you are clothed with purity instead of gold. You are the Ark in which is found the golden vessels containing the true manna, that is the flesh in which divinity resides. In you dwells the Son of God. Um, St. John Damascene calls Mary the true Ark of the Covenant and actually refers to the Ark of the Old Testament as a symbolic Ark. Like the real Ark is Mary, and the symbol was what was in the Old Testament. And symbols can be realities Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, all right. Finally, I want to conclude with this quote from St. Maximus of Turin. Um, and it's actually his commentary on the second book of Samuel, chapter 6. He says, The prophet dances before the ark. Right? David dancing before the ark. But what is the ark if not a symbol of Holy Mary? The ark contained the tablets of the Testament. Mary held in her body the heir to the Testament. The ark carried the law, Mary, the gospel. The ark held the voice of God, Mary, the word. Inside and out, the ark shone with gold. The light of Mary's virginity shines inside and out. The ark was decorated with earthly gold, Mary with the gold of heaven. 
So just a couple of things for us to consider as we, as we talk about Mary um, this month, and, and there's also going to be, um, there is right now, uh, material from the Catholic East Texas. Uh, our, our newest edition focuses on Marian theology, so there's plenty more to learn about the Blessed Virgin Mary this month from the St. Philip Institute. If you want to check out CE, our CET website, uh, which we'll have posted below, and the latest hardcover issue of the uh, Catholic East Texas magazine here in the Diocese of Tyler. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, brief reflection on the Immaculate Conception and, and maybe some other ways that we could kind of argue for that same doctrine using this image of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. Thanks. Thanks.